Father, we agree with the words we just sang as a prayer, that you would be welcome among us, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. We acknowledge before you that we are in great need. We are prone to wander, prone to to drift, prone to worshiping other things. So would you, in your mercy, draw us by your Spirit to, to see you and to worship you. Encourage us this morning through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. I'm setting a timer so you all don't have to stay here too long. If it'll work. Hey, there we go. Good morning. If you would turn uh, your Bibles uh, to uh, Psalm 96, that's where we'll be today. Uh, If you'd like a Bible but you don't have one, you can slip your hand up and someone from our strike team will put one into your hands. It's on page 320 on these Bibles being handed out. We're in the middle of book four of the Psalms. If you've been studying with us, uh, book four, uh, Psalm 90 through Psalm 106, focuses on the maturing of God's people. So we're asking God, our Father, to mature us as his people, as we let his word inspire and we let his word inform our faith and inspire and inform our worship. And within book four, there's a series of psalms focusing on God as king. We brought this up a couple weeks ago. Yahweh Malak, the Lord is king. And Psalm 96 is kind of right in the middle of this series of Psalms, we'll find that phrase here in our text as well. Uh, On top of that, Psalm 96 comes right after Psalm 95, which might seem like a Captain Obvious statement. Yes, I can count. But uh, Psalm 95 uh, last week kind of opened for us another little thematic element in this section. Uh, 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 There's invitation, a a call to worship of sorts, kind of starts in Psalm 95 and is continued here in 96. And so um, for those of you who were able to shove a lot of your driveway last week, uh, there were a few. Um, Or maybe you were able to listen online. Uh, Pastor Charlie asked last week in Psalm 95, this question, is God with us? And and he cautioned uh, against the the kind of grumbling that is fueled by forgetting. We we forget of God's miraculous work in us and among us, what God has done on our behalf, because he cares for us in Christ. And the doubt that comes, is God really near? Will he always provide? That's what we addressed last week. And so Psalm 95 last week is an invitation. It starts, you know, let us sing and, and come into the presence of God with thanksgiving because we, we actually believe he is near to us, that he's present with us. And so Psalm 96 kind of continues this theme. We've been called to enter the presence of the Lord. We've been called to enter The presence of the Lord. Think about that. To be welcomed before the God of the universe. He is with us and invites us to be with Him. And today we're asking the question, if He welcomes us in, 
How are we supposed to respond? How are we supposed to worship this God? Perhaps God has something to say about how he desires to be worshiped. Because it's true, as created things, we are created beings and we are designed to worship. The question isn't, are we going to worship? The question is, what or whom is the object of our worship? And what should faithful and full worship actually look like? And I'm going to try to answer that question here in Psalm 96. And I'm going to argue uh, an obvious statement and a less obvious one. The obvious one is this, that God alone is worthy of praise. And the second one, that God alone is worthy of praise. And the second one, that praise then spills out into proclamation. That we, we praise God for who He is and we proclaim His rule and reign to the world around us. So that's where we're going to go. If, you, if you'd like, grab your Bible, Psalm 96. We're going to read it here together. It'll also be on the, on the screen for those who want to read along there. Let's read Psalm 96 together. <clears throat> oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Excuse me, verse 11. Let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord for us today. May the Holy Spirit bear fruit in our lives through it for God's glory and for our good. Amen. Now, a little bit of context on this psalm. It is technically anonymous. There's no header that says this is a psalm of author. Unlike Psalm 90, which says this is a psalm of Moses, this one doesn't have one. However, it's likely a psalm of David, or at least a restatement of the words of David. And I say that because we find it almost word-for-word word copy of this psalm in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And although Chronicles was likely written down, chronicled, collected, right, put, put together, it was likely written down after this psalm was written down, the events recorded in 1 Chronicles happen before God's people are sent off into exile in Babylon. They happen during the time of King David. And I know this, this is supposed to be a sermon in Psalm 96, but, but I'd like to go for just two minutes to 1 Chronicles 
um, 16. I'd ask your permission, but you're all sitting here, so we're going to go there anyway. The only option you have is to leave. Please don't, okay? Uh, First Chronicles, if you, in the Bibles that we handed out, it's on page 222. Um, and if you don't want to flip there, um, it'll be on the screen as well. We're going to start in verse 23. I'd just like you to listen. Based on what we just read in Psalm 96, listen to, these are David's words, starting in verse 23 of First Chronicles 16. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, for he is to be, be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Verse 28, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Does this sound familiar yet? Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. Then the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Familiar. Not exactly word for word, but you'd probably get charged with plagiarism if you tried to pass, Psalm 96 tried to pass itself off as its own. Now, why do I bring this up? I basically just read the text twice. Why, why did I do that? Well, one, I think it shows some brilliant and, and awesome uh, connectedness and continuity through the Old Testament, which is just cool in and of itself. But two, it tells us something about the type of worship response that is appropriate when we consider who God really is. See, First Chronicles 16 is recording what happened in Israel when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant represented uh, God's presence amongst the people. It was the center of their corporate worship. Later, after David, when Solomon built the temple, it sat right in the center of the Holy of Holies, where, where the priest would bring sacrifice annually on behalf of the people to atone for sin. It represented the very presence of God. And so David's response in chapter 16 is a proper response to the return of the ark and essentially the return of the presence of God to its rightful place. So as we look at Psalm 96, I think the psalmist is reminding the people of God coming out of exile, looking forward to maturity and growth and a hopeful future. He is saying, don't forget, this is the kind of worship that is fitting because of who God is. It is fitting for you as God's people to worship him in this way. And for us, with Christ in view, this is what the proper worship of Christ as our king looks like. Worship that is full of both praise to God for who he is and proclamation of the reign of Christ as king. Full worship is both praise to God for who he is and a proclamation outwardly 
of Christ as king. So let's dive into Psalm 96. And some of you are saying, finally. There are three places in the text where it gives us a clue as to how we can break it down and how we can understand it. If you see repeated phrases or words in a particular point of scripture, pay attention to those. They're, they're meant to help us. And so we're going to look at this psalm in three sections. Uh, what I'm calling the call or the call to worship is the opening invitation, verses 1 through 6, outlined with the words, sing, sing, sing. Verses 7 through 10, what I'm calling the, the content, the meat of our worship, marked by a, a three of ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. And then third, the third section, 11 through 13, the end of the psalm, what I'm calling the context of our worship, the framework, the why. Why do we sing? Why do we ascribe? And that's marked by repeated let, 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 let. And so we'll get into that. The first point is this, the, the call to worship, verses 1 through 6. The psalmist starts with singing. So if you don't like singing, this might not be your favorite part of the sermon. Like, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Those are command statements. But notice the direction of the singing. To the Lord. This might sound like another kind of simple no-brainer statement, but the direction of our praise should be to the Lord. So I don't care if you like to sing or you don't like to sing or you like to sing but you don't, you're okay singing but your lips don't want to move or you sing really loud in the shower or in the car but not in public. That, none of that matters to me right now. The, the point here of the text is that your, your praise is to the Lord. It's the direction of your praise. So let's continue. Um, following singing praise, the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3 are two other words, tell and declare. So on the heels of praise to God is proclamation, telling of the salvation of God and His glory. So praise to God proclamation of the greatness of God to who? Someone says, well, among the nations and among all the peoples. If you're looking for evangelistic, great commission, missionary language in the Old Testament, here's some right here. This is gospel language. Gospel language didn't just originate when Jesus entered the scene in the flesh. This word tell has uh, connotations of telling good news, telling good tidings. So here we have, which is gospel, right? Good news in Psalm 96. What is the good news that they're supposed to tell of? Well, it's the salvation of God. It's his glory, his marvelous works, his greatness, his splendor, and his majesty. Verse 6, and if you keep going, um, his objective superiority to any and every other small g, God, or worthless idol. The, the word there, worthless, literally means nothing. So it's like the nothing gods of the world. Gods of nothing. You might be a god, but you're a god of nothing. And, just, and then it says, because the Lord made the heavens 
just the contrast there of the greatness and the majesty of God compared to everything else. This is the good news the psalmist is saying, you need to declare this, you, you tell this. So as children of God, as followers of Christ, we too are called to praise God for who he is and proclaim to others the glory of God and the kingship of Jesus. So as I read this text, and I've been wrestling through this, I move to some self-examination. So this is for me, but you're just welcomed into this too. Where is my praise directed at other things, at lesser things, ultimately compared to God, worthless things? Like we're always worshiping something. So, so what consumes my time? What consumes your time? What do you honor with your energy and your focus? As a point of application, if I can be direct, is our worship and praise directed more often than not to God for His greatness, or does God get what equates to 20 to 30 minutes of uncomfortable half-hearted singing on a Sunday? But our primary worship is directed somewhere else. Further, See, now you're all like, oh man, it's being mean. Further, it's going to get worse. If we track our time, or maybe this, if others were to do a quick, dirty assessment of our social media feeds, our Facebook feeds, our Instagram accounts, what would people say we're proclaiming? What would people say I am an evangelist for based on what I put out there? My family, my carefully curated, messy life, maybe a business pursuit or my side hustle. See, the psalmist is saying this, there is one, there's only one ultimately worthy of praise. And all other things, even good things, come underneath the praise of God. I'm grateful for my family. I praise God for my family. My, my, my worship doesn't terminate on my family, or at least it shouldn't, right? That rolls up and prays to God because they're a gift from Him. He's the one who gets it. Does that make sense? Even good things ultimately come underneath praise that God alone deserves. And the psalmist is saying, there's not just one who's worthy of our praise. There's only one message to proclaim. And all other messages, even good ones, Worthy endeavors are subservient to the message of the kingdom and the rule of King Jesus. That's what the psalmist is saying here. We are called to full and true worship that is focused on praising God alone for who he is and what he's done and proclaiming Christ as king. And those are our two primary praise and proclamation, our worship and our message. That's, the, that's what we're being invited into. When we're being, the call to worship isn't just a call to sing a song. It's a call to write praise and to proclamation. Two, the second point is the content of our worship, verses 7 through 10. What should our worship consist of? And this is marked out in the text with three words, ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. It's not a word we typically use in our everyday vernacular. Maybe you do. I doubt it, but maybe you do. Ascribe simply means to give. It's giving God glory and strength. And not in a way like that God doesn't have glory and strength and so we need to loan him some of ours. 
Like, that's a ridiculous statement. I have no glory and strength. Like, oh, God, you need a little sum? Here, you can borrow mine. Like, that, that's not what this means. Rather, it's ascribing something is basically saying we are acknowledging God is the majestic one. He's the strong one. He's the glorious one. I'm just agreeing with God that you're the one and not, not me or anything else. It's a confession. I agree, God. You're glorious. You're strong. And notice who's being addressed here. He says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. I don't know if that catches your attention at all, but that word families, this is covenantal language. If we go back to Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abram. Here's what he says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and get this, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That word families in Genesis chapter 12 is the same word families in Psalm 96. And I make that point just to say families of the earth, families of the peoples, he's talking about you and me. Here in Psalm 96, Israel, Hebrew context, families of the people, even in here, there's covenantal language that is inviting Gentiles as the families of the earth being welcomed into God's people or being previewed, if you will. See, from the very beginning of God's covenant with Abraham, God was making himself a people who would be a blessing to the rest of the world. That's why he fashioned them. So that in God's plan of redemption, we as Gentiles would also, lost and far from God, would be grafted in and welcomed into be a part of, made a part of God's family. From the beginning, from the beginning, God's call to his people was to bless them so they would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So you and I, believers in Jesus, Gentiles, are now sons and daughters of God in Christ Jesus. And we are called to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name alone. We are welcomed into that. And then verse 9 The psalmist says, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, because God is holy, it wasn't just anyone who could go near and enter into the presence of God. The way they handled the Ark of the Covenant was important. There was a way in which it should be done. The way they approached God in worship with the the Holy of Holies and the the ritual uh, washing of the priests and and all of that. And, And here... The psalmist is saying, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, now I know that I do not have any inherent holiness to put on. I don't, I don't have holiness in my closet that I can pull out and wear when I come to worship. Holiness is righteous perfection, and the opposite is sin and rebellion. Maybe you've heard this saying, maybe you haven't. Um, you can put lipstick on a pig but it's still a pig. I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me, right? I, I, don't, I, I don't have this like 
You, you can't fool God by like faking holiness before him. No matter how nice your best church clothes, they don't compare to the splendor of holiness. But, but listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, For our sake, he, the Father, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. The imagery here is that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness and perfection and holiness of Christ Jesus covers us like a cloak. It's like a a covering. So when the Father looks at us who are in Christ Jesus, He doesn't see the filthy rags of our former selves and our sin and brokenness. No, no, no. When the Father looks at us when we are in Christ Jesus, He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. The splendor and the beauty that belongs to Christ alone is what God sees when he looks at you covered in Christ. That's mind-blowing. That's the best kind of church clothes. So you and I are invited to bring our offerings into the very presence of God, the presence of Yahweh, and we come covered in Christ. And notice, there's both, in this section, both praise and proclamation again. Glory do his name, tremble before him. And then in verse 10, the psalmist says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. This is that phrase, the Lord is king, Yahweh Malak. So let me ask, does it, does it change the way you approach corporate worship? Or, or might it maybe, even in a few minutes when we, when we break for communion, change the way you, you approach God? Or you approach confession? Or you approach uh, thanksgiving? If you understood and took a few moments to to think again anew that you are in Christ Jesus, you're covered in the righteousness, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, maybe you struggle when it comes to corporate worship. I I joked earlier, you know, maybe you don't like to sing. There's various reasons for that. But maybe the application for you this morning is to consider that if, if Jesus is Lord and King for you, then you are invited to bring an offering of worship in the presence of God himself. The one who, Pastor Charlie, who, as Pastor Charlie reminded us last week, created all things, holds all things in the palm of his hand. He invites you to intimate worship in the splendor of holiness. Ascribing glory and strength, praising God for who he is, proclaiming among the nations the kingly reign of the Lord. And our third and final point this morning is the context of our worship. The why. Why do we sing? Why do we ascribe the way we do In the second century, a copy of this psalm with some other scriptures was translated into the Syriac language, the language spoken by the Syrians. And over Psalm 96, in that Syriac translation, there's a little extra biblical uh, uh, description. And it says above Psalm 96 in that Syriac Bible, second century, a prophecy concerning the coming of Christ and the calling of the Gentiles who should believe in him. A prophecy concerning the coming of Christ and the Gentiles who should believe in him. 1,400 years later, 
Martin Luther, translating the Bible into German, wrote these words over Psalm 96. This is a prophecy concerning the kingdom of Christ and the spreading of the gospel over the whole world. This text has been seen by Christians nearly from the beginning as Christ-exalting, as messianic, as prophetic, to speak of the coming king and his glorious kingdom forever, all the way back here in Psalm 96. And it starts with these repeated words, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the fields exult and everything in it. There's this joining together of all creation, which has been waiting and groaning under the weight of sin and brokenness, which has affected everything in all creation, anticipating the coming of the king. And then creation erupts in praise to God. The heavens and the earth are rejoicing, the seas roar, the fields are exulting. It goes on to, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Even the trees of the forest join in and sing. How trees actually sing, I don't know. There's metaphorical language here. Let's just go with it. But creation is singing because he, the Messiah, has come and he's come to judge the earth. Hold on a second. Wouldn't it sound a little happier if the king of the king of the universe didn't come to judge the earth, but he came to like save it? I mean, that, does your brain, when you read that, you're like, he's coming to judge the earth. You know, like, it doesn't sound very nice. But, but go with me for one second, please. If you think the world is basically good, and people are basically good, and your philosophy of life can be summed up by the words, I'm dating myself, from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where the philosophy is basically Just be excellent to one another. Party on, dudes. Some of you are like, I don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) Movie marathon at my place, you'll hate them all, but it'll be awesome. If, If that's your kind of worldview, then yes. The king coming as a judge is a bummer. But if you've experienced even just, I think, a little bit of life, You've weathered even the small amount of hardship or or trial. You've felt pain and grief. Uh, You've wrestled with God as you've seen the wicked prosper. And you're like, that's not right. Or you've wept at the sight of injustice happening in front of your eyes. Then I think we're able to see, if that's us, if that's our perspective, then we're able to see the benefit of a judge, specifically a righteous judge, a good judge. See, in the ancient world, as in the third world today, and very likely in small towns and in big cities all over our modern world, judges can be bribed. And those with the most money and the best lawyers find themselves miraculously getting out of punishments that they might deserve. And those who are more disadvantaged across the globe tend to get unbalanced scales in their own judgments. 
So those who recognize injustice and live under the weight of it and brokenness, they don't fear a righteous judge. They long for one. They need one because it means that all that is unjust, all that is wrong, will be made right. And this is what Christians have been quoting from Titus 2 uh, for generations, where, where Titus says, or Paul says to Titus, the blessed hope, right? This blessed hope, which is what? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is our hope, that He's good, that He is righteous, that He will right the scales that have been imbalanced and justice has not been served, will be served, and He will reign as good And this is the context, the motivator for our worship, the already not yet, that Christ is king now and will come again as a righteous and faithful judge to rule and reign. Amen. So, what does it look like to actually long for righteous justice? What does it look like to worship Christ as a righteous and faithful judge? More so. What does it look like to extol and to speak of God as a good judge to a watching world? To uphold justice, to speak against injustice, and to hold out for righteousness as ambassadors of this kingdom and this king. As we close, let me leave you with this. John Piper, in the introduction to his book called Let the Nations Be Glad, Um, says this. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So worship is the fuel and goal of missions. Now, I don't just want us thinking about missions as like some faraway thing over there. It's the proclamation of the gospel. There's a timeliness and a temporary nature to it. We will extol God as great forever and ever on our faces before the throne. Hallelujah. But our proclamation happens here. And it's part of our worship together. See, here's here's the thing. Praise to God that doesn't spill over into proclamation to the world is at risk of being empty songs and empty words. I I think there's a reality to that. Praise that doesn't spill over into Christ-exalting proclamation is at risk for us of just being empty. And proclamation declaring the the kingdom of God without being rooted with a fear and an awe of who God is has the potential to actually hinder, not help people enter the kingdom. Let me say that again. Proclamation not rooted in a proper fear and awe of who God really is has the potential to hinder people actually coming into the kingdom, which is what we desire that they would join us in praise and then join us in proclamation. See, by God's, it's by God's grace, fueled by a glorious vision of the kingdom 
to come. A glorious picture of, of the, the, all of creation rejoicing before the throne. That we praise God for who He is. We willingly join our voices together and sing to God for who He is and what He's done. And we proclaim to the world, to the people around us, the greatness and majesty and rule of Jesus as the only source of good, the only good king. This is our invitation to worship, to praise, and to proclaim. Amen and amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess again our great need of you. We thank you for your mercy, that you meet us exactly where we are in Christ Jesus, and by your grace work transformation in us. We confess we far too easily offer our praise to lesser things. Would you smash those worthless idols in our lives? And would you properly place good things in their perspective underneath you? Father, we confess for for proclaiming the kingdom, not out of a sense of awe of who you are, but out of a a sense of self-importance. Would you forgive us if we've hindered entrance into the kingdom by our own sinfulness? And would you work out of us the fear of proclaiming that sometimes we don't say anything at all? We half worship, we praise, but we, we don't declare. Would you give us courage and boldness because of who you are to proclaim? Would you give us encouragement and gratitude in our confession as we come to the table. In Christ's name we pray, amen.